This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. This is Wesley Stace, and you're listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso. For his first several albums, folk pop singer-songwriter Wesley Stace recorded under the pseudonym John Wesley Harding. He tweaked his stage persona further by cheekily proclaiming in song that he was the bastard son of Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and the nephew of Leonard Cohen. But what is Stace Harding's authentic musical lineage? Is he folk royalty or just a good liar? And how does Frank Capra fit the Wesley Stace identikit? In this interview, we set out to suss out the person he is. My original pitch to Wes was an in-depth discussion about his 1991 studio album, The Name Above the Title. Ultimately, we covered the first decade of his career. Let's listen. There are so many sides to every story and this is mine. Sometimes has to come cleaning Now is the time I just couldn't see love's great defection Now it's flourishing in one dimension Love went over the wall Was it pushed or did it fall? Who says he understands your plans, your dreams, your schemes, your feelings But rather you than me, that's his mentality He's a slave to gravity and watches laughing as you fall down He doesn't even have to nail you That's why he takes pleasure in other people's failure, in their failure. That's why he takes pleasure in other people's failure. Messed with a game with bad news from the wall. Fighting for They don't want to be stars on your TV screen That's the general feeling Please don't blame it on me And the people said One and one is two There's nothing left for us to do Since we can blame it all on you We will kill the messengers Kill the messenger 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 He'll apply for reinstatement Using the reincarnation rules He's the only man, most certainly Who could claim to have learned from history You 
can hear them falling every day. Hitler's tears, just open up the newspaper. Hitler's tears, you can hide, there's no escape from. Hitler's tears, just what makes the Fuhrer blue is crying for you. Wesley Stace, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm going to give a little bit of a breakdown for people who aren't familiar with your music. I know you have a really nice fan base and you treat them very well. But for the people who don't know, John Wesley Harding is your alter ego. Your alter ego comes from a Bob Dylan 1967 album that went to number two. It's a folk album. It's uh, after Bob Dylan went electric, he came back to folk music again. It has All Along the Watchtower on it, and um, he misspelled the name of a famous Texas outlaw, John Wesley Hardin, added a G, and you, you took that name. Why? Uh, because it was very like my own name, which is Wesley Stace, because I'd always been intrigued by that album because you didn't see too many Wesleys mm-hmm. about then. It's a, little bit more, it's a little bit more common a name nowadays, you know, but back then it was, it was quite rare. And when I was also teaching and doing a PhD at university. And I didn't necessarily want people to know that I was going around doing shows, so I thought I'd have a fake name, which has a good... uh, Stage name. Yeah, has a good lineage in rock and roll. You know, I'm not the first person. As we talked through some of your early albums, I noticed that three of them are titled in tribute to the film director Frank Capra. The first one was It Happened One Night, which is a live album. Yeah. It Happened One Night is a Frank Capra movie. You have another one, Here Comes the Groom, which is a Bing Crosby movie Frank Capra did. Mm-hmm. And the name above the title, which is the album I was introduced to you with. So what is your Frank Capra connection? Well, I liked his movies a lot. Um, and, uh, but I suppose uh, the first album was really only called It Happened One Night because it was a live album and it happened one night. And very few people have live albums as their first album. So I thought that that was a good thing to do <laughs> because not many people did it. And the reissue of it many years later had an extra CD and that CD was called It Never Happened At All. So gotcha. the, It Happened One Night was the first album. And then when it came to my first band album, which was the first album I made for Sire Records, I wanted a good introductory album name, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, an int- you know something that sounded like an introduction. So I thought Here Comes the Groom was great. And it kind of happened to be a Frank Capra film. And then, you know, I could have gone through all of them, I suppose. But <laughs> as with all these things, you know, uh, the last one, the name above the title, that was his uh, autobiography. Um, and, after, and even Why We Fight, the next one, that's the name of Capra's wartime documentary series. So 
it went on for a, a little bit, but I never got to the bitter tea of General Yen or <laughs> you know, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town or anything. Right. How long before that first album, that first live album, were you writing songs? Not writing, writing, but writing songs. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, honestly, not terribly long. I learned to play the guitar more or less at universities. So I picked up a guitar first when I was about 15 or 16 and I bought Bob Dylan's Songs of Bob Dylan 1966 to 75 songbook and that had the pictures of the chords. So I never had any lessons but I did learn all the chords pretty quick. And then when I went to university I started writing lyrics um, just that I would sing at some point and then I started turning them into songs and I didn't really have any terrific support for that around me. I wasn't part of any musician's circle or anything, but I was very involved in politics at university and particularly in protests and rallies and at things like that. If you've got a guitar and you've updated a Phil Oak song that used to be called Here's to the State of Mississippi, and then he updated it to his to the State of Richard Nixon, <clears throat> and then you updated it to his to the State of Margaret Thatcher, and it's in the middle of, you know, the foment and student protest, and you're on the steps of the building singing. People tend to listen to you, and that was kind of how I got going, really, and it's something that I still do. A friend of mine, Roger Clark, and I, well, Roger Clark wrote this thing called Mr. Tangerine Man that I then kind of changed around and, and recorded. And another friend of mine, Andy Paley, wrote a thing called My Least Favorite Things that's a parody of my favorite things that I kind of changed the words to and made it so it was quite political about stuff. And so that's the thing I've kind of done throughout my career is have humorous political protest songs up my sleeve, always thinking that people could lose their attention really quickly. So you better make it pretty funny. So that's how it started. Then I had a friend called Andy White. And Andy White actually had a song called Religious Persuasion that got him kind of some kind of attention. He'd been at Cambridge University where I was, and believe me, nobody got successful in music coming out of Cambridge University mm -hmm. back then because nobody wanted people perceived as upper class or upper middle class. It was the days of Billy Bragg and stuff and really mm -hmm. like nobody wanted me to be a protest singer from Cambridge it was the worst and um <laughs> so Andy kind of got started getting some attention and, and occasionally I would open a show for him and he'd just gone on tour with a band called the Hot House Flowers and that was a big flop the tour mm. and nobody had gone to it at all I remember going to it and nobody was there in Northampton that's where that was and so I was supporting him at a gig in London and he had literally said to me, lovely man, but he'd literally said to me, or he hadn't, he'd said to our mutual friend, tell Wes he can't play any of his own songs, you know, only <laughs> So I, play, I mean, that's true. And so I played um, Learning the Game by Buddy Holly. Uh, oh God, I can't remember. I used to know the three songs that I played, but one was definitely Learning the Game by Buddy mm. Holly. And um, <clears throat> after the show, his agent said, do you want to do another tour with the Hot House Flowers? And he said, no, not really. And he turned to me and said, well, you were good. Do you want to do the tour? And I said, yeah, I do want to do the tour. I totally want to do the tour. Heck yeah. And I was at uh, Cambridge doing a PhD at 
the time. And so I said, sure, I'll do it. And, and so I got the 50 pounds or 100 pounds. And just before the tour started, they were suddenly a huge band. The Hot House <laughs> They had a number one single that, that was on the Eurovision Song Contest, not in competition, but as an example of great music coming out of Ireland, where the European uh, Eurovision Song Contest was held that year. I realize this is a very long answer, but I am getting to the end of it. Shortly. I like it. And so um, at the end of, uh, during that tour, I was suddenly playing to a thousand people at the Town and Country Club in London with these songs that I had. I wasn't playing any covers on the tour. I, I was playing my own songs. So by the time I supported Andy, I had my own songs, but I wasn't playing them. And then by the time I went to tour with the Hot House Flowers, I played all those songs. You know, there's probably seven or 10 or 15 or 20 or 50. I don't know how, how many were any good. But during the song, Demon Records kind of saw me and wanted to sign me to make an album. That was the live album. So it happened very quickly and pretty naturally. But I didn't really even start playing the guitar till properly till just before university. And then by the year I left university, the Demon Record came out. I'd probably written many songs in the meantime, but I don't think I was playing many of them live. I like that answer. And let's back up a little bit now um, and inform the answer some more. I get the impression you're a lyrics first kind of person most of the time, some of the time. Yes, yes, I am. And I am too. When you had the realization without anybody to train you that you had to have a song form, which means that, you know, a poem you can run on forever if you do a poem or uh, prose. You can have one long stanza, you know. You can put your rhymes wherever you want. You can do yeah. anything you want. But once you have to change to song form, you have to think in terms of verses and choruses and rhymes and um, that type of thing. Um, do you remember that, that process? Yeah, that, all that, 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 that isn't really a process. That's just understanding how poetry works and scans. So, yes, of course, a poem can take any form, but I chose my form to be the ballad form. And the ballad form is what Bob Dylan wrote in and, and what many other, you know, folky and poppy singers basically wrote in and what it all comes back to in the end. And, you know, um, Lord Lovell sat in his castle gate as combing his milk-white steed. Along came late, you know, and, and so if you just write your own song to that rhythm, then you've written a lyric. So to me, that was not a process, really. That was just, you know, the power of the bullet is fascinating. And I couldn't bear it if the rhymes weren't perfect. Well, the power of the bullet is fascinating. They're polishing the Luger facsimiles. The little kids grow up imitating. Cowboy shooting you the party with Don't get me to the battle on time, because I'd be useless in the front line. People think my rhymes are pretty heavy because I like I like a solid rhyme. You know, when Bob Dylan rhymed language and sandwich um, in that sign language song that Eric Clapton covered, to me, that's a beautiful rhyme. Oh, and yeah very what I love to do you know and, and people I mean I get emails from people just say oh I love that ride and I always feel so good about it because I work hard on that stuff but to me what you get a lot with poets I've written uh, I've written some songs where writers poets uh which I 
only mean in that they're, they're good writers, have given me stuff and it's quite unsingable. Because the, although it works well in a line of poetic scansion on the page, it's almost impossible to sing because of poetic techniques that are quite normal and powerful for poets like, uh, I don't know, I never know quite how to say it. I knew it was enjambement, but I think people call it enjambment, which is where you, you, ha you have the, instead of the end of the line, it runs on over into the next one bit of it. Yes. See what I mean? And that's fine on the page, but you can't sing it. And so my lines always pretty much end at the line and they generally end with a rhyme. I've, I've, I've written in many different forms and structures. I mean, I did English literature at Cambridge. So on one level, I was instructed in the techniques of prosody, mm -hmm. but very few of those are actually useful to you in writing songs. Yes. However, a solid knowledge of ballads and Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and Randy Newman and that stuff, that is extremely useful to you when, you're, when you want to write something down on a page. But I wouldn't let them sit on the page very long after I'd written them. It wasn't like I had scads of things that I wanted to say that I couldn't turn into songs in time. It was more like, oh, that's a great thing to write a song about. I'm going to do that. And then I pick out the simplest tune possible for it generally. But yes, the lyrics definitely come first. That's not always true because it can't always be true. Sometimes I've been in the studio having some fun with someone and we've come up with a little loop or something and I've gone, oh, I could do something with that. But generally, that is true. Here comes the groom. Here comes the groom. Here comes the groom. Here comes the groom. But the world's not an inn and there isn't any room for you. But here he comes. For your first studio album, Here Comes the Groom, you list three producers, yourself, your friend Andy Paley, and Tom Robinson. Tom Robinson uh, was the great, great English punk rocker who sang 2468 Motorway and Sing If You're Glad to Be Gay. He took me on the road and was a fantastic mentor to me, made a lot of demos, which rather unfortunately got subsumed without quite the correct credit to him in my first album. But he was incredibly instrumental in getting me going and helping out with stuff. But when I got the deal with Sire, it all, the whole project kind of suddenly moved to America. And the demos I'd made with him went with them because we needed more for the album. Anyway, long story. Not an unhappy one, just a long one. You never have to apologize. It's all fodder for songwriters. They like that stuff. <laughs> when you went from doing your first, your first album, which was live, which was you singing with a guitar. Right. And these are just your arrangements that you put together to, so you could sing them in a live situation. And now you're doing Here Comes the Groom. Your, first, your second album is really your, your debut in the studio. So how different was it for you to let go and let the producers do a little bit of finagling of the song. Did they do any, did you do everything? Who arranged? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. And it's well asked as well. I think the key thing here is that I knew nothing about going into a recording studio. Nothing at all. All I've ever done, I've never had a four track recorder. 
I've never, or uh, the, when the iPhone was invented, that was the first recording device, except a cassette recorder that you just press, you know, record and play at the same time, as you'll remember. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was all I had before that. I, I did use mini cassettes for a little bit, and I still do sometimes for writing projects, but I've never fiddled around in recording studios at all. I knew very, very little about sound. And in fact, I have a very, very, or had a very untechnical mind for listening to music. I didn't really even know if it was John or Paul singing. I just Mm. didn't care. I did when I started making music, but as a kid and as a teenager, I had never really separated the bass part out from the guitar. I just didn't (laughs) care about it very much because to me it was all about a bloke or a woman with an acoustic guitar singing a song, be that John Prine or Steve Goodman or David Blue or Jim Croce or Joni Mitchell or whoever it was, that's what it was. And the rest of it was kind of unimportant to me. What mattered was whether they got your attention. With their lyric and their melody. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't like punk music or indeed ABBA. I loved ABBA. And I think you hear a lot of ABBA on the name of the title, by the way, but or attempts at it. Mm -hmm. But um, the thing was that I see Seymour Stein, who was the head of Sire, kind of I was marched up to his office. And I actually wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal quite recently. I reviewed Seymour Stein's uh, autobiography memoir. And if you look up that review, that reveals the whole story of how I got signed in it because they asked me to review the book and I said look you know I'm intimately acquainted with this guy (laughs) and he signed me and they said yeah that's why we're asking you and I said okay then I can do an honest review of the book so I I but I used a kind of personal approach of my own to review his book which tells the story but he signed me within he I played the song the devil in me to him and a couple of other songs shotgun at Kennedy in Dallas in 63 they blamed it on Oswald carelessly, but it was the devil in me. For Jesus on the cross, I put a gag on the boss. I kicked him on the cheek so he could speak, but that was the devil in me. It was the devil in me. He said, yeah, let's do a deal. Within an hour, Andy Paley had been summoned to his office who happened to be in London and obviously Seymour was looking for a project for him to produce and I met my producer. We talked about the Beach Boys because Andy Paley had just produced Brian Wilson. I told him how much I liked ABBA. We got on really well and decided it was a match made in heaven. That was the record deal. Then Seymour sent, or rather the higher ups, whoever they were, because Seymour was the boss, sent over his a consigliere, Howie Klein, kind of to scotch the deal, I think, because Seymour probably <laughs> signed a bazillion, but brilliant, but a spillion people like that. And Howie was sent over to kind of, I think, I think let me down gently, but he really liked the music we were making. I mean, that's as I remember <laughs> it. And so it got done now. So that's how Andy Paley was chosen. Andy Paley became a very close friend of mine, is still a very close friend of mine, and I love him very much. His production on that first album was absolutely great because he said, do you have a band? You know, shall we get one together? And my manager said, we want to use the attractions. Elvis Costello was not really using the attractions very much at the time. He was kind of on his more of his confederates and, you know, Hidalgo and T-Bone Burnett route at the time. This is 1989. Right. So 
that's what Elvis was doing. I knew Pete and Bruce, not Steve's. I made demos with Steve Naive, but he was never part of my band making session, my, the, the, the band I had, which was called The Good Liars. Bruce was the bass player and Pete was the drummer. Bruce was the bass yeah, Pete was drummer. We knew them from the pub, basically. They were Glenn's old friend. Glenn, my manager, had been the PR guy at Stiff Records, which you can understand was quite a crazy job. It was the job where, you know, he'd be told, get all the journalists here tonight for this show. And then when the journalists got there, none of them could get in and they planned it on purpose just to annoy the journalists. You know, <laughs> difficult job. <clears throat> and so Pete and Bruce and then a genius guitar player called Steve Donnelly mm -hmm. and the, a guy who had been sadly now no longer with us, a man who had been MD for Van Morrison in Lindisfarne. Uh, and in Mark Armand band called Kenny Craddock, who had made some earlier demos for me because he happened to live in Hastings, which is where me and my family were from. Even though I didn't live there, I loved going there and he was from there and he and I became, were very, very good friends too. And he made wonderful demos for me. And in fact, a lot of what you might call the arrangements in inverted commas are from demos that he made, not all of them, but that the band kind of copped particularly on the second record. So on the first record here, which is what I call Here Comes the Groom, because it is the debut, really. Mm -hmm. On Here Comes the Groom, we just went into a rehearsal studio, the five of us, and we played the songs. And what I immediately realised, because I had had shitty bands at university and stuff, playing kind of R&B songs. And so I had, I did understand what being in a band was like. But what I immediately realised was I knew what all the parts were in my head. I knew that I wanted the guitar player to go ding, 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 ding. And I wanted the keyboard player to play a lick here. So maybe, if you'd forgive me, maybe you were subconsciously more aware of yes. the things that were happening than you really gave yourself credit for. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's 100% true. And I mean, now, when I go into the studio, I think the people I go in with kind of know that about me. They're free to play what they want, but there are bits where I'm going to be going, I need this here, no, not that, this. And the intro's got to be, the intro's got to be bum, 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 on the bass. Nothing else, that's the intro. And so the first time I went in with the band, with this band, with, you know, Pete and Bruce and Steve, and I realized that the bit I almost like most of all was going in with songs kind of naked, rehearsing them, finding what it could be, and then listening for the parts that one could turn into the song with the hooks and making that first album was an amazing experience i mean it was just we rehearsed for two days in a rehearsal room and then we went and did the basics in three days at eden studio studios in chiswick trying to cut four or five a day and um the thing i had least opinion on and it's still true weirdly is the drums I have many times told drummers what to play, but generally I pick drummers who I know they're going to play what I want them to play. So I don't have to school them in it. And Pete was very good like that. I remember just one on People's Drug on Name Above the Title where he did something and I said, I don't like that. It hangs, <laughs> it, hangs it up too much. It needs to be straighter he went oh do you just want this shuffle and I said yeah and I said I, I just don't like the other thing sorry he said and I remember him saying well that's what Jim Keltner would have thrown in 
And so I guess I didn't like that. But, um, you know, I was, I mean, I was a kid and I remember on Here Comes the Groom going, you know, here comes the groom. And I said, and then it's got to go. Ba-dum, bum, 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 here comes the groom. Ba-dum, bum, bum, bum. <laughs> and it's got to be on a glockenspiel. So I was immediately like, totally into all the arranging. And now, I mean, obviously it's 25, 30 years later, but now that is the most important bit to me and the bit that I spend most time thinking. I don't write anything down. I just know what I want. Um, and also I don't read or write music particularly well at all. So we made Here Comes the Groom and I wrote two or three of those songs on the back of a ship going from Patras in Greece, having seen Bob Dylan, to Brindisi in Italy, where I was flying home from. Weird. Uh, Scared of Guns and You're No Good were written on that. Oh, and When the Sun Comes Out were written on in one night. So that was a bunch of new songs. And when we got to America, we put the overdubs on mostly in America. And then I felt that the album wasn't acoustic enough. So I kind of added The Red Rose and the Briar and Think Snowball that I wrote right there and then with Peter Case. I've always been a very spontaneous person. And if it's happening at the time, I'm very happy just to go with it. I'm very happy, provided I'm with people I trust, I will surrender myself to the process. I will let them play what they want with the proviso that the, I will need to hear what I want as well and it was an incredibly lovely experience well you couldn't have picked more tasteful players um, players that insinuate themselves on a song are really hard to get along with if you had had them first you'd have had a, a, a much different experience these guys yeah they, they leave space and they know where things need to go yeah i mean also i needed experience Mm -hmm. Andy Paley was a real, I mean, he's been in a billion studios. The engineer, Mark Lynette, they're very experienced people. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to have a good time doing it. They knew the rhythm of, oh, now we're going to not do very much for an hour. We're just going to sit in this kitchen and talk. And now everyone's going out for a cigarette. And suddenly we're going to work really hard. They, and I just experienced and watched it. And it was beautiful. Sire put the record, Sire didn't even know what it was. There wasn't even a name for the music it was. I mean, it wasn't right. like anything that was being, it was folk rock. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. Little bit kinksy, because I like that kind of thing. Yep. Little bit, little bit of pop music, little bit of kind of old fashioned R&B music. It was all the things that I like. I had, I used to write about old cinema a lot and I used to reference old rock and roll a lot, like Kathy's New Clown. There's an apocalypse now on Station Road weird thing to say but I always saw myself as nothing particularly original but very pleased to be in a lineage of people so you know like almost like the folk tradition but it was the rock tradition so I like referencing the Everly Brothers Kathy's Clown and I liked thinking about being Bastard Son it's like I'm telling you Bob Dylan's my father and Joan Byers is my mother it's a metaphor mm. and these this is the lineage that I'm in and, and um, I'd always done that even on the you know, I had a song called Phil Oaks, Bob Dylan, Steve Goodman, David Blue and Me, 
on my first album. I mean, how weird is that? And in a weird way, it felt a little postmodern to me, mentioning these people, making you aware of kind of how, I don't know, just what a fan of music that I was. So that was Here Comes the Groom. It was a very bold album to make, I think, because I wasn't, I had no self-consciousness at all. I just went in there and did what I could and did it as well as I could. I don't much like my singing on the album, um, but I really like the vibe of Here Comes the Groom. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I was going to bring up the title, Kathy's New Clown, because um, you do have a lot of touchstones that you mention in your, in your lyrics and in your titles where people read them and say, I know that he knows this other thing. Yes. But he's making something new. Yes. And that's, that's really cool because it brings them along. It gives them a connection to you through your connection to someone else. Thank you. I mean, that's the point of it, isn't it? You know, like, I'm not a big believer in God, to be honest, but God mm -hmm. is a very useful person to use in a song because people what you understand what you mean by God. Exactly. And they understand what you mean by the devil. And they understand what Jesus represents. These are touchstones. And in the same way, the Everly Brothers are a touchstone. Yes. And I mean, I've done that over and over. You know, I, I had a song, you know, recently called The Way We Weren't. The only way it works is if you understand there was a thing called the way we were. That's right. And you have to have that kind of in your head as you're, as, you're, as you're listening to that song. And I do that all the time. I've always done it. I'm rather a, my lyric writing has always been a little self-conscious and I, I tried to, and, and aware of what's going on around it. And the album I really tried to conquer that on, not conquer, because that makes it seem like it's bad, but is the album Self-Titled, which was the first Wesley Stace album. That was an album, I mean, the other musicians are mentioned plentifully on it, but only in an autobiographical way and in the way of my life and what I was listening to, because it was a very personal album. Anyway. So that was Here Comes the Groom. It came out, it did relatively well, I think, for what people expected. It was played on 120 minutes. 120 minutes on MTV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, and you know, I toured a lot um, and it was great. Everything was great. I didn't take a band on the road. I just toured that first album solo. You can make a lot of money that way. So it was time to make a second album. Just for the, uh, the audience sake, his second album is like his fourth album because he had an EP and he had like a Christmas EP and a live album. Yeah. But, but it's his second album in the studio. A lot of people bought the name above the title because there was some review that said, hey, Elvis Costello lovers, check this out because he's got some attractions on here and he writes a little bit like them. And you're gonna, if you like that, you're going to like this, you know, kind of like Amazon does now. If you, <laughs> if you like this, you'll like this. And I think that's how I found you. And I think that's how some of the people that you know, follow you now, found you, mm -hmm. um, in addition to your, to your following you already had. You know, the interesting thing about you having asked me in the first place, do the name of the title, is I just did a tour called John, uh, Wesley Stace's Tribute to John Wesley Harding, where me and my pal Robert Lloyd, who plays the mandolin and the accordion, and with whom I toured a lot in the 90s, we went back and we kind of played those first three albums. I mean, the songs Here Comes the Groom and Name Above the Title and Why We Fight and Songs From It Happened One Night. We did play other stuff that people want to hear, like uh, I'm Wrong About Everything and the song about Starbucks and some of the recent things that people requested. But the idea of the tour was that we went back and played these old songs. Now, the Name Above the Title might technically... I don't think it's true, actually, because I think Confessions of St. Ace 
on Hollywood might have sold more than that in the end. But um, I think Name Bug Title might technically be my most successful album. I certainly think it has terrific songs on it. And I can understand why fans hold it very dear to their heart because my first album came out and then the second one was kind of, you know, pushing me on a little further. And Person You Are, the single off it was, you know, technically my most successful song chart-wise because it got into the, you know, top some 10 of the modern rock charts or something like that. I mean, that was a big deal at the time. And so I know why people like that album. And I, I just listened to it this morning for the first time in years and years and years in preparation for this, because uh, I never listen to my own music ever unless I'm rehearsing it. Um, and I don't like the album very much. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to, to expand on that. Well, it's very simple. I think Andy did a great job and Mark Lynette did a great job. It's partly tinged, not regret, but I think if I'd had stronger guidance, Mm -hmm. Those people would have said, go and make a completely different sort of album with somebody else. Like mm -hmm. what I went to make with Steve Berlin on Why We Fight for the third album. I think if I'd had st a stronger hand with me, and I don't blame my lovely manager, Glenn Colson, really, but I think I needed a firmer hand to say, you know what? Let's give you some A&R. But in fact, all anybody could think of to say, and I was a big part of it was let's go back into the studio and make the same album, but with horns. Right. And so to me, I do look upon it as like Sable and Room for me, certainly one of my best songs. When it's time to pack your bags with everything appears, it's the drag that it is. Get down that brown case that your grandma had, open it up. Think of your dad when you're feeling empty. Echoes round this cold white room have no identity. When it's time to pack your bags, save a little room for me. Save a little, save a little, save a little room for me. Person you are, 100%. Uh, movie of your life. The movie of your life. They'll get some real jerk to be you. Edited till he can act. Cause because of him. TVQ In the movie of your life You'll be less famous Than he is That's a strange turn of events You'll be a cameo Amongst the Russians I mean I listened to that Recording today It's just so nice. There are really great things on that album. But in fact, what I like most about it now are the rather simple songs like Backing Out and Facts of Life and People's Drug, because everything, it's just a swamp of sound. And I just think there's too much on everything. It's produced. 
it's produced, but I think it's also kitchen sinky. Like, I was listening to Bridegroom Blues, which is not a particularly important song one way or another, but it was one of the, we recorded, we did exactly the same as the England. We, we recorded like eight or so songs in England with Here Comes the Groom. Eight or so songs in England with the attractions and that lot. And then we took those to America and we recorded a few more and overdubbed onto uh, the ones that we had. And like Bridegroom Blues, I listened to it and it's got this, you know, it starts off with a kind of a drum loopy thing and this guitar riff. And I mean, clearly the song should start right there. And what happens is the horns come in before I even start singing. Yes. It's like already there's nowhere for that song to go. There's nothing can possibly happen bigger than it's set. So personally, I find the album a little blaring. Got it. And, and um, like, for example, uh, you know I've been doing this, co this Coronation Covers project. It's happening right now. It's a coronavirus activity. My fans on my Facebook page started to fantasize about who would sound great singing which of my songs. It was a fun game. I was nothing to do with it, but it was fun. I took down the list of songs because I thought that'll be an interesting list. And when I looked down the list, I suddenly thought, oh, well, Van Morrison's not going to do this because he's a grumpy old git and he doesn't, he doesn't want to record one of my songs. And I completely sympathise with him and nor has he ever heard of me. Mark Boland's not going to do that because he's dead. And Elliot right. Smith isn't going to do that. But then there were certain names on the list that I suddenly went, oh, I could ask that person to do that. And they, they might. And so over the last three weeks, I've been putting these up on SoundCloud. And today we put up a Roseanne Cash doing I'm Wrong About Everything. Great. Day, uh, that, that just went up this morning. The day before it was Stephen Page of the Bare Naked Ladies doing something, Ryan from Guster. Um, and nobody knows which they're all going to be, but they're all things that people have requested. Gary Lewis from the Jayhawks did Kiss Me Miss Liberty. The whole thing opened with Graham Parker doing The Devil in Me. And over my 30 years, you know, I've met a lot of people. I'm friends with a lot of people. And so I just said, hey, will you do, we're going to make this person's day. We're going to, this is how we should be doing. We should be making people's day one person at a time. And so I've been putting up this um, playlist of things and somebody i won't say which performer because i don't want to give it away yet because they're a surprise i mean nobody knows what's going up tomorrow i do and it's absolutely amazing what's going up tomorrow but of course i wouldn't say it in advance it's all a surprise but some random person said oh can we have uh doing blur and they didn't expect that they would get that within three weeks that person doing that song just a crazy dream come true project so somebody asked a particular performer to do the song the world and all its problems off uh, name bug title uh, which i memorably did on letterman with the band and all their horns and everything i was horrified to send that performer the album version of that song because i just i i mean I, it's not that it's not well done with all those horns and everything, but I don't feel it really gets to grips with the spirit of the song, in fact. And um, so what I uh, did was I sent that, who happens to be female, so I sent this performer the acoustic version of that song I play live, accompanied by Robert Lloyd on the mandolin, which is an excellent arrangement of the song. Very simple, no horns, no ba da ba da ba. It all sounds a little, 
I mean, at the time, I just thought I was, I was committed to the, whatever was the progress of my music. As I say, I'm very comfortable with the process. But I, and Andy did an amazing job. I mean, you listen to those little parts on Movie of Your Life and the outro guitar on 50-50 Split. In fact, some of my favorite bits on that, on the name above the title, are the bits where I'm not singing because I find the arrangements are very good um, and my singing is not very good. So um, I like it more when they've got me drenched in reverb at the back of the house on backing <laughs> out and facts of life and stuff like that because it just sounds a bit more. In fact, sounds a bit more like I'm going for a sound rather than just sticking everything on there. And, um, but so, you know, so when I think of the world and all its problems, I just, I just don't think of that album version really with any pleasure. I understand. May I insert myself here for a minute and give you another perspective? Are you interested? Yeah. Okay. So I wrote a little description of the album opener. The album opens with a cinematic movie theme a fluttering string section playing the last chord and descending bass notes of the bridge to the movie of your life, which we're going to hear later. Together, these two tracks will act like a prelude and a reprise, lending the album an epic quality and more than just a collection of songs. As the strings fade, we're jarred to attention by snare rim shots, a horn section, and a storyteller instructing us to shut up and listen. double-barreled opener. So, yeah, I get that sometimes an arrangement, but that's the thing. Like, when, whenever somebody records with a crappy acoustic guitar, my brother will say, oh, that's an ugly guitar. And I'm like, that's the guitar on that song. That's the guitar on that recording, rather. Yeah, yeah. And I'm okay with that because, like, sometimes we purposely choose a beat-up piano, right? And the piano sounds beat up, sure. and that's the character. So that song has a character. That version of the song has a character, and I like oh. its character for what it is. I, I'm also very intrigued to hear the other version. Well, oh, that's easily heard, but you kind of have to go and see me live to see it. Um, I think uh, People's Drug, that's that kind of rockabilly feel that I think that band was particularly good at. Give me some of the people's drug. Give me some of the people's drug. Whatever makes you feel like good, I'll take it like I know I should. So give me some of the people, people's drug. Whoa. Give me some of the people. 
Adam's drug. Drug. They were very good at hitting their stride on that. I suppose it's the really the only album named by the title that in hindsight, I might have tried to rein it in a bit. In reality, I wasn't trying to rein it in at all, quite the reverse. But in hindsight, I kind of wish we had. And that's partly, I think, because at that moment, that album looks very, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to put my finger on. Uh, the song I always think of as an example is Long Dead Gone. Long Dead Gone So here rests in pieces Whatever it was that we could admit to Whatever it was that was me and you What was me and you What was me and you I wanted Long Dead Gone to be like a Richard Thompson acoustic song. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what the lyric is like. But, you know, the album version, it's terrific. It's an excellent recording. It's just not the right lyric for that song. Okay. I, I find, when I think about it, I find, I think, you know, Long Dead Gone was better when I just played it solo, to me. Um, but at the time, I was very excited about making the album everything that album could possibly be. Um, and uh, But that's why I still play a lot of songs from that album, sure. because I think the songs are fantastic. I mean, Save a Little Room for Me kind of turned out to be one of the longest and most long-lasting songs of my career. I've played it not at every gig ever since, but very, very, very often, like the devil in me, off here comes the groom. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I do remember off this album was when we were making Person You Are, which I'd always intended to be the first single. I remember the first time I played that song and thinking, oh, that's got a good chorus. You know, we should do something with that. And I remember we were in the studio and it didn't have a riff. And Andy Paley said to Steve Donnelly, hey, can you give us something a bit like And Your Bird Can Sing? And he said, oh, I'll try and have a look at it overnight. And I mean, he came in the next morning and he played that. And we were just like, that's so fantastic. I put my forehead to the door. I heard the famous sound of infidelity. Looks like I loved and lost once more. Oh, but I was fair in love and warm. I couldn't even burst in on you See scrapping sheets to your excuse Give you the evil eye of verbal abuse Why do you do what you do When the things that you do hurt the person you are It's so obviously a tribute to, to another thing, like we talked about before. It's a touchstone. We know that's the Andrew Bird can sing touchstone, but it's a different song. It's a different riff. Yeah, it's a different riff. I mean, that's, that though, that is nothing to do with me. He came up with that on that instruction. He came up with that perfectly. And it was a devil to play. But you do uh, an internal rhyme uh, 
that's really nice. I put my forehead to the door, my problems, they hit the floor so gracefully. So you've got door and then you've got floor in the middle of a sentence. Then you've got, seems like I loved and lost once more. Oh, but all's fair in love and war, supposedly. Yeah. Super nice. Thank you. That's, I mean, you know, I spend my, I spend my life trying to think of nice things. Somebody said they liked a line of mine the other day, which is from a, a song called Negative Love. Only the naive believe in love and other lies. Yes. Only the naive believe in love and other lies. Now, I, I mean, I don't need to tell anybody how great my lyrics are. You know what I mean? Like, that is not, an, that is not a situation I want to be in. But I could write an essay on why that's a good line. Nobody else might give a toss about that. But to me, if you've got naive believe and the the is love, only the naive believe in love and other lies. I mean, that is, I mean, I spend a lot of time writing the lyrics. Sometimes they come out very quick. Uh, and the, the um, uh, I've particularly got a particular friend at the moment, actually, who's, who's liking my music more than they thought they would, I think, and texting me lots of lines they keep hearing about this and that. And it's, it's a very pleasant thing to, 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 to consider them because, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to make them be beautiful, beautiful language. In the chorus to that song, the protagonist catches his lover in the act with someone else. Yes. yes. And when you get to the chorus, he says, why do you do what you do when the things that you do hurt the person you are. And I'm thinking, that's like the Zen master in the art of restraint right there, because most people would have been screaming obscenities, and, and you talked about that in the song, but you held back. And now, is that, uh, are you that guy? I don't mean in the situation, I mean, are you the calm guy? No, not at all. But also, you know, I always have a very fraught a relationship to the question of how much the songs are about me. Mm -hmm. Obviously. They're of you. Yes, they're of me. And obviously I write them and obviously I'm involved in them, but I have never been in that situation myself. I am not, I've never been that, in the first verse, I've never been in that situation. In the second verse, I mean, I don't, I like a drink as anybody who knows me knows, but I mean, I've, I've never been in that kind of, you know, out on the town on my own, drunk out of my head, not knowing what to do and why do I do it to myself? You know, it's a song about personal responsibility and it's a song about being good to yourself. And Okay, so the chorus, you're talking to yourself, not the person who cheated on you. Uh, I'm talking to both of us. Both. Yeah, both of us. Why, why is she doing that and why am I doing this? And the last verse kind of brings it to the environment. The last verse kind of, why are we doing this to ourselves? Mm -hmm. Which is also what the devil in me is all about. Why are we fucking up the planet? What, what are we doing? And back then, I remember this, I tell the story on stage or I did just recently. I remember being at the video shoot for Person You Are. And I kind of went up behind the camera guy to, or whoever, the boom guy, you know, to look at the little video monitor to see how it looked. And I, uh, he said to the bloke standing next to him, oh, God, now he's going on about the climate, you know, oh, Jesus. And I kind of, and I was very embarrassed for him and I didn't want him to know I was there because it would have been so awkward. So I kind of just went away again. Um, but, our, but it was not a cool thing to be, people just didn't care back then. You know, there was an Earth Day, and I remember being on a few of them, but, you know, it was just not, people didn't care. And so that song was all about 
self-destruction and trying to analyze a lot of my songs are and particularly were then because i used to think of things in quite global ways how the things i do mirror the things that the world does and devil and me was about that too so you know a lot of the songs are about the me in the song is really everyone Mm -hmm. shouldn't we be trying to do this all better shouldn't we be kinder to each other and shouldn't we be you know etc etc and i had a lot to say but i didn't necessarily think i knew a lot either so you know i mean it wasn't like i was from some place go ah i've got all the answers here you know but i did think there were things worth singing about that that um you know that were my, that were my subject matter you also put some unusual, unexpected things in song lyrics, and I was very pleased to have picked out, even with your accent, costs because of his TV cue. And I knew what a TV cue was. None of my friends did. Mm. But they're not cast because they're like you or because they can do you well. No, no, no. They're cast because they're popular. And you move on to do things like, now that you're so big, you're the biggest thing ever, your resurrection, and then you're going to hang out in the critical clothesline. Yeah, that's a good line. In the same sentence. So you got resurrection and clothesline, like so juxtaposed and yet so perfect. Oh, thank you. Well, I shouldn't think I've had an in-depth conversation about the lyrics to movie of your life ever in my life. But I do remember in the movie of your life, it's only seats they're booking. Yep. Um, I remember that on the Japanese lyric sheet for the album, there was in the movie of your life, it's only seeds the paper kin oh boy (laughs) so so i don't think they're understanding the english lyrics in japan terribly well not if they're reading the lyric sheet of that album anyway to whom it may concern whatever your address i didn't think i'd have the nerve to write this i confess to get it off my chest But now that I have your attention I must make sure I get it right John Wesley Harding's New Deal in 1996. Love this album. This was the first thing I heard after our email conversation when you said, why concentrate on just one album? And I listened to this and I, I felt right away after dropping the needle on every song, But it's arranged, I don't want to say like a string quartet like yesterday, but Paul McCartney's Yesterday. The vocal and the melody and the chords stand out because of the arrangement. The arrangement doesn't get in its way at all. The vocal's intimate and upfront. The instrumentation is sparse. It's not particularly of a certain genre. It doesn't feel country, doesn't feel folk, but it feels just beautiful and lovely. And all of these songs are sort of intimate. Your wonderful sense of lyric and title and... Your musicianship got better. Your voice is... is, is, Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, you know, so after Why We Fight, um, everything was changing at Sire Warner Brothers, and Howie Klein said, you should look for another deal around now. And we were very good friends. And he, he said, you know, if you want my advice, get out while you still can. So he let me put out an EP, and then I... I pretty much had my own, you know, I was master of my my new album. And immediately what I wanted to do was do an album where I was totally in control of everything, where nothing, there was no wasted money, there was no big studio. And I had a very good friend in San Francisco, something of a genius called Chris von Snyden. And I used to go down to his 
basement studio and make songs down there. And I just wanted to make something that was just me and an acoustic guitar, really, with the sparsest amount of other stuff on it. And certainly one of the influences would have been the Bee Gees early records for me, the first three or four Bee Gees records. Sure. I love those records. And, you know, I remember we did To Whom It May Concern, which is obviously an opening track of Welcome on yeah. that album and letting people know, you know, rather like the string quartet and then the rim shots, except it's to who, except it's a typewriter going bump, 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 mm. bump, bump, and then to whom it may concern. And I did two takes of the vocal and then we, and then, for some reason, one was left on by mistake. And I was like, that's what I want. That's that yeah. double track sound. I want that double track sound. And Chris was like, well, if you want that, let's get it right. And you said no. Well, no, actually, I think we did make a few changes to it because there were a couple of lines that were way out because I hadn't meant them ever to be sung together. Oh, gotcha. Or played together. You cleaned them up a little. Exactly. And we had a pump organ down there that I loved. And then Robert Lloyd, who'd been in my touring band for the Big Loud Records, um, he's a great mandolin and keyboard player, so we got him up. But it was a very, very sparse... Oh, and the genius acoustic guitar played on that album is Greg Lease, mm. who's a great, great player, played pedal steel with Katie Lang. And, and he came up just for a, an afternoon or couple of days, but we, he played all those great guitar parts. I play all the strummy parts and the picky parts and anything that's a second guitar on top of my guitar is him. Uh, we sent the songs I wanted strings on to Tammy Rogers in Nashville. That was probably my first ever experience of somebody recording something remotely for me. Mm. Uh, because she kind of did. I said, well, on this one, I'd like some fiddle, but on this one, I'd like a string quartet. And the album just came together really, really nicely. Very intimate record. She didn't insinuate herself on your song. She, she no. adorned, adorned your songs. Beautifully. I didn't send her parts, though. Mm-hmm. I, I, I explained verbally what I, what I wanted. Later on in my life, you know, I've had string parts arranged. I mean, particularly self-titled was a very arranged record strings-wise because I wanted to cut it with the strings mm-hmm. live, some of it. Um, but, you know, then that was my first experience really of being in charge and using strings. And, and so that was, seemed the best way to do it. And she was a friend and she's so awesome. So what, was ha- what happened there was with New Deal, I went, this is the first John Wesley Harding album. Gotcha. In, but what I mean is, this is the first I'm going to take the blame for. There's, no, there's going to be no, you know, oh, the label made me do this, or, you know, I, I'm not sure I wanted, you know, there was no excuses. I just wanted it to be me. And, and, it, and, and that meant quite tentative steps in the direction of anything that wasn't, just me and an acoustic guitar. But I didn't want anything to be just me and the acoustic guitar. So there's like a drum kit here for a bit and there's me playing a little electric guitar. I think still photos are uh, a surprising one because I, I think I might play everything on that song, oh. which is very rare with me because I don't, I want people who can really play to do the things, but I have a certain kind of thing that's right in my wheelhouse. And I think Still Photo might be one of the few songs where kind of I do everything on it. But I mean, the xylophones, there's anything we had lying around and we didn't have a lot. There wasn't a lot lying around. But I love um, 
in paradise on that. We actually went out to the Great American Music Hall in the middle of the day and recorded their grand piano for that. It was a beautiful album to make. And then, and to me, that was the happiest I'd so far been making a record. And I love making Why We Fight with Steve Berlin. I love making the records with Andy Paley. But on New Deal, I felt like, oh man, oh man, we can do this. And so we then did it again on an album called Awake, which I wanted to be like New Deal, but reflective of some more modern things that I was listening to at the time. Yep, you did the, Your Ghost, Don't Scare Me No More. You've got a buzzy synth bass. And a lead synth line. Your ghost visits every night at midnight. I can hear the clanging of your chain. First you frightened me, but now somehow I'm to see you come again Yeah, exactly. And uh, the guy from Guster, Ryan Miller, did a version of Your Ghost as part of the covers project. And he was able to do with Your Ghost what we had dreamed of doing at the time. And I sent it to Chris von Snyden, to, who co-produced Awake With Me as well. And he uh, said, I just remember us sampling that harmonica. Like, we sampled a harmonica so I could pitch shift it on nice. a keyboard so it sounded like some of the gangster rap noises that I like. <laughs> so it sounded a bit like Dr. Dre or whatever I'd heard and thought sounded cool. I wasn't a big, I wasn't a big listener to that music, though I was very into the Victorian um, rhymes of rap music at that time. I, I thought it was so great that it was such radical music that they were using the rhymes like I could deeply admire because they were so old-fashioned. Anyway, irrelevant. Well, you know, there are, there are stereotypes around folk music, and the, the stereotype is, this is an old one, that they don't try to, they don't like to go electric, or they don't, and yeah. you know, this is a very old thought, but um, when you when you brought in these junky drums, and I say junky with love, you know, with yeah. affection, and, um, and it just, it was nice to hear you get out of your, um, I love your quiet side, but I also love this. Yes, exactly. And, and I, it was, um, as I recently said, when I was discussing the Gusta cover of, uh, Ryan's cover of Your Ghost Online the other day, Awake was probably the most experimental, if one could possibly, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a pretty, I'm a traditionalist, you know, in almost everything. Um, and it was the most experimental album I ever made in that I, I tried to use, you know, because Chris was keen to experiment with me and we didn't want to just make New Deal again. I think after Name Above the Title, and this ties into what I was saying earlier, I have never made the mistake of making the same album again. Mm -hmm. or I have often made the mistake of not making the same album again. Do you see what I mean? I do. If I die tomorrow, break out and play my best guitar. 
Don't put this one in the hard rock cafe In a case above the bar I'd like to take this chance to say goodbye You want the answers Don't look in my eyes and Whose idea was it in the song Burn, We're All Gonna Burn is the um, title line, to sing a melody that's slightly off kilter with the chords? Mine or mine. Everything's mine. Really beautiful. Chris's contributions to those records is enormous. Absolutely enormous. He was engineering. He was playing a lot of the bass, singing helping me be in tune, telling me what was good or bad. But I think I can say almost without exception that all the parts that wound up on that album, unless he was playing them, are things that are just in my head that I won't let go of. I can also make a very happy ending with this because Awake, again, was a terrifically successful album for me personally. I loved it. And after that... um, I made, I had friends, I moved to Seattle, I made a traditional folk record in Seattle. And a guy called Rob Seidenberg, who had a label, well, long story short, Mammoth via Hollywood Records. We were friends-ish, knew each other, kinda. And he just got tired of the concept of me not making (laughs) pop records, because he loved my first two records, Here Comes the Groove, I guess and name above the title. And he said, I want to sign you to Hollywood Records, but you, you know, do you want to make a pop record? And I said, yes. And the great thing was that when I went to make at the end of the 90s or whenever that was, Confessions of St. Ace for Hollywood, Mammoth. 2000. I knew exactly what I wanted in the studio. It didn't matter even who the musicians were at that point. I was so, we recorded with great guys in Nashville, fantastic producer called Gary Burnett, got Steve Earle into duet one song, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, Al Anderson was there, so many great people hanging around. And I knew exactly what I wanted by that time. And sure, I still had a producer, but I knew the parts I wanted. And even more so on the next album, which is a very long story, but was called The Man With No Shadow was then finally issued as Adam's Apple because Hollywood Mm -hmm. dropped Mammoth. And in a very happy end to that story, is coming out as a two LP set in its original format of The Man With No Shadow. And it was going to be record store day this year. And in fact, I've got one copy of it sitting behind me awaiting um, uh, record store day when I can kind of bring it out because it's all fine and ready to go, but there is no record store day. So that's basically the story of the 1990s is you know, a live album, then Here Comes the Groom, as discussed, Name Above the Title, Same Again with Horns, possibly not my favourite record. Why We Fight, a much stranger record that probably should have been my second record, I think. Re- re- get, getting it back again on my own terms in New Deal, expanding that on Awake, having a little breather with a traditional folk record, and then suddenly having a major label deal again and really being able to take advantage of it. And that was the album Confessions that had I'm Wrong About Everything that was in uh, High Fidelity. So that made a nice, they call it, impression for me at the time. And then The Man With No Shadow and everything went south. And suddenly, you know, that was, and then that was the future of my recordings. And ever since then, 
uh, what I've really done is picked a band I love and said to that band, would you mind being my backing band in the studio? I know your music incredibly well. I know what your strengths are. I have lots of songs. Would you mind being my backing band? Which is how I got to make um, Who Was Changed and Who Was Dead with the Minus Five, my most recent album of original songs with the Jayhawks, um, uh, the sound of his own voice with the Decemberists, etc., etc. And that's kind of my thing. And I also have my own band, the English UK, who made self-titled with me and are always ready to go into the studio at the drop of a hat. And I have a lot of new songs for my next record, uh, which I'm very excited about. Oh, can't wait. That's basically the story of me in the 90s, if anybody's interested. And I just summed it up in a paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Wesley Stace, it's been absolutely enjoyable talking with you. Thank you very much. It's been enjoyable talking with you as well. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 20 with Wesley Stace. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the show, consider reviewing us wherever you podcast. Your positive review will help other listeners find our show. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.